Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. I want to say a few words about social enterprises. Social enterprises, Julia, this is directed to you, obviously. <laughs> social enterprises continue to be the flavor of the month. And on first glance, what's not to like? The basic idea sounds pretty perfect. You take the best about business, you apply it to a social or environmental purpose. You reinvest a large chunk of profits back into the business. You make decisions based on what will best serve the purpose rather than what will best serve the shareholders' pockets. And you end up with results like 15, Jamie Oliver's venture, which gives disadvantaged young people the experience of learning to work in the restaurant business whilst also creating some award-winning food. Or the Divine Chocolate Company. Its primary mission is to improve the lives of cocoa farmers in West Africa. And it's so successful, it now has 25 products available in supermarkets, Oxfam independent stores, in this country and beyond. Or Greenworks collects unwanted office furniture from businesses and redistributes it to schools, charities, and community groups, whilst also creating jobs for the long-term unemployed. They're all great organizations. Giving businesses a social purpose is a great idea. But the thing is, we don't need a special vehicle called the social enterprise to do it. Any and all businesses in all sectors can and should and do create social and environmental value. Take Unilever, hardly anyone's idea of a social enterprise. Yet its mission is we aim to provide people the world over with products that are good for them and good for others. Like many businesses, it invests to generate long-term growth. And it is so clear that its shareholders' interests shouldn't trump those of others that it recently stopped issuing quarterly earnings guidance to the stock market. And as their CEO, Paul Pullman, uh, said in an interview with James's fine newspaper recently, I do not work for the shareholder, to be honest. I work for the consumer, the customer, I discovered a long time ago that if I focus on doing the right thing for the long term to improve the lives of consumers and customers all over the world, the business results will come. And there are countless other examples from the very mainstream business world. Take Google, which exists to organize the world's information and make universally accessible and useful. In fact, one of the most notable developments in the corporate world in recent times has been the growing emphasis on social and environmental impacts, and on how business can help solve the most pressing issues we face. Of course, there's more to be done. It's not as though every business out there is trying to change the world for good. But the social element of the regular enterprise is definitely rising up the agenda. So it seems at best ironic, and at worst dangerous, to be championing the idea of social enterprises as the new solution, 
Why cordon off a small niche of business, of the business world, for social progress? Surely it's for everyone. In addition, I struggle with what the social enterprise suggests about the regular social or charitable organizations. Just as it suggests that most enterprises aren't social, it also suggests that most social organizations aren't enterprising. And once again, I don't think that's right or true. There are countless examples of charities and other social organizations that are incredibly entrepreneurial in their approach. They're professional, competitive, innovative, creative. In fact, they often have a lot to teach the private sector. I was uh, looking at Clinton's, uh, the Clinton Foundation's website um, by chance yesterday, and it was talking about the way in which it did its, its uh, uh, business. And I just used some phrases from there to, to, to prove the point. It emphasizes across all its initiatives that it uses measurable results, innovation and market, efficiency and sustainability, and replication and scale. Sounds fairly enterprising in the way it goes about doing its business. Or take a big global, long-established charity like WWF. It would be hard to say that it has not evolved into an, in an enterprising way. It is now recognized by its Panda logo alone all over the world. It has been very quick to respond to the way in which the world is changing around us, leveraging the likes of Facebook and Twitter and getting through to the millennial generation far better than many regular businesses. Its five-year strategic plan lays out a clear set of objectives and details about how it will act to fulfill them. It's been working on driving behavior change long since before it became a buzzword. Or Oxfam, another big global charitable organization, and one that's the author of some of the edgiest communications of recent times, with a presence on most high streets, an effective brand stretch strategy, its bookshops are more successful than many private sector ones, and a very punchy expansion plan. I think you get the point that I'm trying to make. Social organizations are definitely enterprising, and so they should be. Their donors have every right to have their money well spent and their donors are also likely to hold them to account. It is a competitive space. I think I would be hard pushed to find anyone who wouldn't agree that charities should run their affairs in a business-like way. So it's not just the idea of a social enterprise suggests that most businesses aren't social. It also suggests that most social organizations aren't business-like. I think this is not only wrong on both camps, but also sends the wrong message for our times. We want businesses to have a sense of social purpose, and we want social organizations to be professional and enterprising. And we should applaud the extent to which both of these things have been happening in the past few years. It's a great development, and I, for one, would like to see it continue into the future. That would be real progress, and I don't think the upstart of the social enterprise help. Excellent. That was, that was uh, very interesting, and I think I'll be able to hopefully round, come round to that at the end. So my, my thought for, for the moment, if I could improvise and say rather than for the day, but for the moment, that it's been certainly what's been um, uh, fixing us at Ariadne Capital is uh, David and Goliath must dance.
question. Let me step back. When I came to the UK and I uh, was running a network called First Tuesday of a number of internet entrepreneurs, it felt like every one of those internet entrepreneurs was a David with his slingshot trying to annihilate the establishment. Um, revolution was in the air and they all felt and sounded like technological revolutionaries. And if you read Carlotta Perez, she speaks a lot about um, the moments of disruptive technology and certainly the mid to late 1990s was a time of disruptive technology, the emergence of the commercial internet. And you can look back to the early 1970s for the microprocessor and all the way back to the printing press. There are moments of time where um, there are profound changes in society because of disruptive technologies. That's not what's going on right now. Over the past 12 years, through the dot-com boom and bust and through the financial crisis of 2008 and 9, broadband mobile penetration of technologies has continued to just um, penetrate our lives. The social and economic institutions have taken that disruptive technology and just embedded it into our lives in a way that uh, we don't even think of how much we're using technology and how much we're living online and how digital our lives have become. What that means is that it's not a moment of disruptive technology for investment. It isn't a time when those uh, uh, digital entrepreneurs who might come to Ariadne Capital or to other investment firms are basically creating what we call digital enablers, enabling technologies which have the effect of two things. They shift the infrastructure to the cloud and they create the opportunity for what we call ecosystem economics because we think that the winners of this next phase of business are going to be the companies that organize the economics of the business model for the ecosystem in which they operate. First the transaction and then by definition the broader ecosystem. And what those Davids, the new David of today, the digital enabler David, still with his slingshot, is looking for is a big distribution base. He's looking for a, a mobile carrier, he's looking for a Facebook, he's looking for a retail bank that he can hop on the back of a Goliath and scale his business that way because no venture capitalist is going to give him 30, 50, 10, whatever million pounds to acquire 30, 50 million customers. He's got to do that on the back of clever partnerships. And so what David and Goliath do in their dance is they complement each other, but they create a high-growth enterprise. Now, a couple of them have gotten away all the way through and become those new platforms, the Facebooks, the LinkedIn, and that's why they have the premium and the valuation associated with becoming some of these new platform and distribution bases. Um, but most of what's going to happen is these digital enablers are going to take very small amounts of, of money, much less capital. The very first deal I, I uh, did when I came to the UK was lastminute.com, and we raised $6 million sterling um, in their Series A. To do lastminute.com today, you would raise £300,000, 95% less, right, because the cost of technology has come way, way down. You'd get it up and running very, very fast, but the key thing would be how would the lastminute.com of today scale? It would do so on the back of a big partnership deal. So if I give you a couple of examples, if you scan the market, you can see these David and Goliath deals everywhere. British Gas invested not too long ago in a company of 5 million out of a 15 million pound round in a company called MyAlert. They have a product called AlertMe that actually competes with one of our portfolio companies' um, products. It's a remote home monitoring and management application. If God forbid any of our houses were getting burglarized right now, we'd get an alert to the phone. It's a, it's a digital enabler. It's an enabling technology. 
what British Gas did is to put five million into the 15 million pound round, but more importantly, they gave them access to 30 million customers that British Gas has. That's what I mean by David and Goliath deal. Or when Yale acquired Trusted Places, which was a local review site. Again, not a lot of money had gone in. It wasn't a big transaction. These are not 100 million pound exits. But again, Trusted Places then has um, access to the entire distribution base of Yale.com. David hopping on the back of Goliath, trying to create a high growth enterprise. There's a profound network orientation to business today. So if there's like one kind of sub-thought to David and Goliath, Muscanto would say, if you're still thinking linear, if you're still thinking top-down, then you need to update your thinking to that. The reason why, um, and Giles mentioned earlier, Google and uh, Apple are doing so well is because they started to, Google says that they organize the world's information, but they actually do a lot more than that. They organize the economics the world's information. What's interesting to me is that they aggregate on an anonymous basis all of our data for their business model, but they give us nothing in return, which I think is really interesting that nobody kind of jumps up and down and says anything about that. So they do organize the economics of the world's information, but they don't cut us in on that transaction. Now, I think one of their biggest Achilles heels is if somebody cut a different set of economics in a more inclusive fashion in the game of search. Now, Microsoft acquired a company a couple years ago um, out of uh, Madison, Wisconsin called Jellyfish, which was starting to do that. But we found a British entrepreneur, actually, who did that. His name is John Paleomolaitis, and he had a company called Beat That Quote, which was doing cashback deals, white-label deals, and we sold that business to Google on the 4th of March for 37 million sterling. He had the right business model. It was not the obvious company. People would have suspected that Google would buy a money supermarket or something like that, but John, had the right business model, and he was cutting a better set of economics. He understood ecosystem economics. And he understood that the real opportunity, the real investment thesis over the next five to 10 years is that who owns the economic value of your personal data? That's what everything is going to be about. So ecosystem economics, the winners are the companies who organize the economics, the business model in their transaction, and by definition, the larger ecosystem. And that's, again, what jobs is real contribution has not been the beauty of Apple devices. It's the fact that he took on industries like the record labels, like the mobile carriers, which were stifling innovation, and he broke up the cabal and said, we're going to start cutting in more parties to the economics of those transactions and ecosystems. So ecosystem economics, network orientation to business, and David and Goliath must count. Very good. Thank you. We're, um, I presume we have a microphone around here somewhere, so if you want to have some questions in a minute. Uh, let me just ask you both the same question, which, I mean, they're both terrific talks and lots of stuff to think about, but one might think that this is slightly depressing vision, that if you are a um, you know, socially-minded person who wants to go and solve a problem, a social enterprise might seem like a very positive way of doing it. If you are an entrepreneur, you probably don't want to partner with Goliath, you want to do it on your own. You want to be the Google that sort of takes over the market. So is this an, an optimistic vision that you're both presenting, or is, it, is this just the world that we have to, to, have to live with? Um, I, I think it's incredibly optimistic from my perspective, because I, I think that there are, there's too much confusion about what things are and what they aren't. And I think that we can be much clearer about it. You can be successful, <clears throat> tackle a social issue through a successful business. And 
you don't need to have different structures or community interest company frameworks or different tax regimes, etc. You can be entrepreneurial and find a way to deliver your social purpose through that if that's what you want to do, or you do it as a charity in an enterprising way. So the point is that we don't need a, any new vehicles or structures to do it. We've got two that are very good at doing them if we use them successfully. I actually was going to, at the end, I, I forgot what I was going to say, because I would apply ecosystem economics as a kind of operating model to what Giles said as his thesis, and to say that when I say that the, the winners of the companies of this next decade are going to be the companies that, that uh, organize the economics for the ecosystem, I think that applies also to social enterprise. I think there will be a premium associated with the companies who are locking in and cutting in the most number of people into the business model. So if by definition you are excluding or um, damaging parts of the ecosystem, you aren't going to win. That's not, that's not going to be associated with a premium. And I think you can apply it to politics and government as well because I think the only model which, which works is a model where the only legitimate model is a government which has a way of organizing the economics for society whereby everybody is cut in, everybody plays a role. It doesn't work to play Robin Hood and it doesn't work to play the other way. It's got the business model for the ecosystem, right? The economic model of society has to work for everyone. Very good. We've got about five minutes for a couple of questions. Do I see any, any hands? Otherwise, you're just going to have to rely on me to answer another one. There we are. There's a lady here and Julia. And, well, we'll take these, these three and then um, just quick, rel relatively sh sharpish. Hi. Um, my name is who you are. Uh, my name is Tina Stoll. I'm, I'm a member of the House of Lords. I just wanted to ask, I mean, in terms of the, um, what you've just described as the ecosystem for um, sort of uh, digital Davids, is that something um, that, uh, you know, we should, should we not be applying the same kind of model? And I suppose you've just already answered the, this question when referring it to politics, but, but in the sort of, you know, manufacturing and trading uh, um, sort of uh, sectors as well. Because, uh, I mean, it, it strikes me that, um, in this country, whilst we can't compete with, um, you know, the sort of manufacturers out in the, uh, you know, in India and China in terms of, you know, cost, we can compete on on quality. And there are sort of lots of small manufacturers that are, you know, trying to succeed uh, in the in the new economy. That actually, if they were to partner up with the sort of big trading um, sort of uh, sort of organisations like John Lewis, who we heard from earlier today, could be doing exactly what you're saying in the digital. Uh, arena, sort of, but in, in something a bit more traditional. Should we not be encouraging that more? Why don't you have a crack at that while the microphone comes down? To uh, absolutely, Tina. I think that you know that the point of what the you know um, entrepreneurship is an asymmetrical game of warfare. But what you got as an entrepreneur, if you're a digital David, as you put it, is that you know how to run faster. You understand the ecosystem economics, and most of the Goliaths don't get that yet. They're still thinking top down, like the record labels or like all sorts of historical industries. So if you can help the larger Goliath, the distribution basis, the, the industries of yesterday, understand how to walk into the digital age, for example, just really quickly monetize, right? A great UK financial services company, mobile banking is enabling retail banks to get into the world of mobile banking, not disrupting them, enabling retail banks to understand how to get their cutting a set of economics, everybody, mobile operators, banks, individual lower cost of capital. 
And they are, although they are 160 million sterling on the London stock market, they're still a digital David. They're a digital enabler to retail banks. And so what a digital David needs to understand is lean operating model. He's able to deliver lower cost infrastructure and a set of ecosystem economics. And that is the role of these digital enablers. And you see it across, we saw something uh, in the sustainable cities place, living planet, again. You can apply that model. We first started to have some of these epiphanies, and then we looked for exceptions, and we said, no, actually, that's what's happening in society right now, is digital enablers to larger distribu distribution bases. I think it's a good point. I hadn't thought of manufacturing. Very good. Julia, you had a question. Well, Julia, it's a question for you. I mean, it's a really really crystal clear picture you paint and who could disagree with it and the whole lateral world and partnerships and uh, my question actually is what happens after you have this wonderful marriage between David and Goliath because traditionally it's one thing to dance in order to raise funding but when you have your business bought wholesale does the Goliath do justice to the David or does that not matter because they've got their squillions do you see what I mean? How sort of post how much post integration could and should be happening? And do they in fact monetize back or is it like the book publishing industry where they rarely, rarely make back the advances they give? It's all done on a gamble. Well, ebooks and publishing is going through a dramatic change as well, and I think we could have a whole separate discussion about that. But I talk about this with the CEOs of all of our portfolio companies because all of them are working towards a model of finding that better parent. And what they really want is actually a bigger platform, right? So they've kind of grown out of their cup, and now they're, they're, um, if they're good, they're probably bouncing up against capacity issues, and what they want is to have a bigger cup. And what's interesting with Beat That Quote is uh, John Paleomaletis has become the global head of Google's business there. So I think that's great for the UK. I don't think there's anything you know, to sneeze about there. And each one of, at least in our portfolio companies, the entrepreneurs are saying, not, oh my god, I, I, you know, I don't want to sell out or I do want to sell out or whatever, but wouldn't it be great to have that bigger platform to be able to, to deal on a larger scale? The economics today of venture, which is my business, are just profoundly different than what they were 10, 12 years ago, you put small amounts of capital in and you don't have somebody else's money to go find 50 million customers. You've got to do that through finding a bigger platform to operate on. So I think it's actually, it can be quite harmonious. It can be, again, this enablement rather than disruption. At least that's what we try to engineer. I mean, Giles, this must make sense in your corner of the world as well, that the large companies that campaigners or social groups often look to to try and change their behavior or, or integrate with consumers. We mentioned Unilever or companies like that. I mean, does the same risk apply? I think it, it, it's different because it's, there's less ownership issues. I think that what you're seeing is business when as it uh, looks to um, manage its social and environmental impact more effectively once it gets from sort of uh, being uh, defensive to being sort of creative and forward-looking about it, normally opens towards looking for partnerships to learn and to develop and to create new solutions that will help them and their business and uh, increase the social and environmental impacts of, uh, in a positive way of, of what they're, they're doing. In, in a sense, that can mean that they're putting their arms around smaller 
organizations that are uh, particularly focused on particular social and environmental issues. But it's not really an ownership thing so much. It's more utilizing their knowledge and understanding to help that business, you know, deliver a, a, the, the social or environmental challenge that the, organ the smaller organization is trying to deliver. Very good. All right, I think we're going to have to stop it there. I apologize. I know there was another question or two out there, but it's, the, the, the clock is against us. So I'd ask you to give our two thought for the day as a round of applause.